and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal. I'm joined today by a titan of British broadcasting, the former host of Question Time and the man who anchored TV coverage of some of the biggest occasions in national life, David Dimbleby. Hello, David. How are you? I'm well. Good morning. How are you? Morning. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, every day is exactly the same as every other day, and it involves me staring at my dining room because I'm not allowed to go anywhere else. But apart from that, pretty good. So, how do you know what's going on in the world through television? Through what do you? What, how do you access all this? How have you been following the American elections? How are you following? I well, I feel like I'm I'm betraying you by saying this, but I've gone to CNN. <laughs> so yeah. all the, the American elections were exclusive CNN territory for me, and so for about a week straight. I injected that stuff into my eyeballs, and I'm now weaning myself off this this terrible drug. How about you? Surprised. I'm slightly surprised by by that. I thought I actually my I, I watched ITN on the night quite a lot because I thought they had a very good studio setup, and Tom Bradbury was was really good. But CNN, the one thing about CNN, I mean, I I, I like CNN, and I did some stuff with um, Christian Amanpour just just before the election. Mm-hmm. But on the election stuff, they seemed I was surprised, put it like this, that on election night and sub- subsequently, they've never really, they've got one Republican. And uh, for my money, if you're going to cover the thing properly, they ought to have had a Republican voice being challenged about what Trump was saying. Instead, they were all sort of singing to the same hymn tune, you know, hymn, hymn sheet, you know, all saying, oh, this is ridiculous. I thought it was just, not that it was one-sided. I mean, it wasn't that. It was just that it was monotonously one-sided. Yeah, I, I thought that there's a bit of that in the days that followed. But on election night itself, I, I didn't really, they, they sort of gave up on the pundits altogether and just went for some kind of frenzied. Oh, I love that guy with the beard. Wolf, Wolf, what's his name? He's brilliant. He is very good. But also just, I mean, just, just the sheer commitment to data rather than any kind of commentary at all, which lasts for about 24 to 48 hours where they just sit in front of a screen. And, and if, I think if you're a sort of like hardcore political nerd, on the night itself, that, that's probably what you're, what you're looking for. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, well, that that's, that's all there is in an American election result, isn't it? There are no candidates talking. There's nothing like a, a – I mean, British elections, British election nights are absolutely brilliant. I think they're the best mm. election nights in the world because <laughs> our voting system, which is attacked as being completely outrageous, and in many ways it is – Actually, on election night, it's a proper horse race. It really works. Mm-hmm. And um, you get excitement and you get the candidates gradually dawning on them what's happened, you know, over Brexit as well, over the referendums. I've, I've always kind of compared it to, it's like political archaeology. Um, it's like being a political archaeologist presenting it. You, you sort of go into the studio and at five to ten you have an exit poll and then the first results come in and it's like, being involved on a very complex dig at Mycenae or somewhere where you have an empty field and you just dig away and you find a little bit of little bit of pottery and you say, ah, that shows that. And then gradually a picture emerges. <laughs> Whereas American elections, you know, it's, it is, I mean, it's exciting. And watching Georgia was absolutely riveting. But you don't, nobody knows what's happened for so long. And nobody comes out and looks sad, disappointed, you know, certainly not Trump. Um, uh, whereas in a British election, you get that sort of, you get that wonderful, the downcast look. You remember uh, the look on Portillo's face when he lost way back. I remember, yeah, I remember it well. Like that, yeah. 
No, so, I remember it well. It was one of my first nights of sort of watching politics. And I remember my mum jumping up and down on the bed in just absolute euphoric glee. Your mum was jumping up and down on your bed or on her own bed? My parents on that night were in Winchester. And if you remember, Winchester went to the Lib Dems by two votes. I do remember well. And they had a re- they had a re- thing, didn't they? They had a. a- Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it was it was a very euphoric night in the Dunt household that 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 right. evening. Yeah, and right. um, you've just brought out a new podcast looking at the Iraq war years called the the Fault Line: Bush, Blair, and Iraq. What 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 um what made you go back to this stuff, particularly right now? Podcasting's really interesting, and the Iraq War podcast sort of illustrates this, which is that if you go back to things that have happened, what are we talking about seventeen years ago? People talk about them in a much more nuanced way and you get reflections on how things happened, which in the heat of uh, the moment don't come through. And what really interested me about it and I think is fascinating about it is the, you know, the central business, it's called Bush, Blair and Iraq. The central feature of the podcast is the relationship between Bush and Blair, which actually means, in an odd way, the relationship created by Blair with Bush, uh, which got us into the war. And what I think is stunningly and intriguing about this is that you have Blair as a kind of idealist, which he was. He made the speech in Chicago when Clinton was still president, talking about the democracies in the world, creating democracies where they could and all that sort of thing. So he he thinks immediately after 9-11 that the proper place for Britain is beside America and then gets involved in this idealistic view that you've got to get rid of Saddam and nobody, nobody thought Saddam was anything other than an extremely wicked, dangerous, unpleasant dictator, but then gets sucked into trying to persuade Britain and his electorate, because unlike America, who, you know, they, they actually passed a law under Clinton saying that regime change in Iraq was American policy, in quotes, whatever that means, doesn't mean they were going to do anything about it. But in Britain, invading a country and upseating, uh, unseating the dictator is not allowed legally, though we certainly have done it from time to time. And um, um, so he has to find a way of justifying what he believes is the right course to take. And so you get into this business of does Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction? And that's where it all becomes completely fascinating because at every turn there are, there are moments when doubt is cast on whether he does have WMD. Remember, he had them after the first Gulf War and the weapons inspectors concluded he got rid of them after the first Gulf War under the uh, inspection regime. The question was whether he was still making them. And then... All sorts of people come out with an axe to grind, if that's not the wrong word, analogy to use. But anyway, people come out saying, yes, of course he's got weapons of mass destruction. And who are they? They're people who want to unseat him, like Shalaby, who wants to become president. Various people. And so false information starts coming out, saying he has got weapons of mass destruction. And there's a counter-argument that actually he hasn't. But Blair can't really hear that because he's already committed himself as a major 
diplomatic act to support George W. Bush. And so what, what we're showing is in this is how when the facts start to turn against you, if you're committed to a course of action politically, uh, you find it very difficult to abandon the, the, the path you've set yourself, the course you've set yourself. If ambiguity comes in, if doubt comes in, your instinct is to push it to one side. And, of course, fatally at the end, they accepted the evidence, and even Colin Powell, who was speaking at the UN at the very end about this, they accepted mm. the evidence of a charlatan who turned out later to be a total, total charlatan who said that there were mobile lorries going around uh, in Iraq uh, making chemical weapons. And it, was a fan it wasn't a fantasy, it was a lie, which he'd invented and which he kept on, you know, finding ways of feeding information suggesting it was true. Now, when that came through, what happens? Well, it could be true, may not be true, but it spoils the story, the narrative of what we're on, the course we've set on. 45,000 British, 45, British troops already in southern Iraq, waiting to go in, outside southern Iraq, waiting to go into battle. You know, you, you, at that moment, do you hesitate because of this information? And he, he didn't. He ignored it. If you're a politician and you decide on a course and you've got huge political capital invested in it, what is it that can knock you off course? And the answer is it's very, very difficult to be knocked off course because politics being what it is, that would look like feebleness, weakness, that would damage your relationship internationally, mm. damage your relationship with American all history. That's really what this podcast is about. There's a temptation, isn't there, to sort of mark this moment as the, the beginning of the sort of decline in trust in, you know, in government, in media that sort of leads you then to you know, the referendum on Brexit and Donald Trump and things like that. Is that too pat or, or, is, or do you think there's something to it? Well, I think uh, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 as a journalist, one has a terrible tendency to mm. pat about things. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to make, to string those things together. What I think it, what it I don't know what the causation consequences of it were but i think certainly it did demonstrate and illuminate and put a spotlight on if you like a feeling that first of all the word of politicians couldn't be trusted when blair stood up and said 45 minutes you know the threat and all that and we've got to do this and made analogies with appeasement of hitler in the house of commons and got a huge majority in the house of commons and then it turns out that the arguments he, were use, he was using all through were untrue. I think that certainly damaged the trust in politicians. As for the journalism in America in particular, the big newspapers swallowed the line that was being put out by the intelligence services, not always by the CIA, funnily, because they subverted the CIA off and went round the back and came up with stories about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. And those weren't properly investigated. I mean, the Knight Ridder organization, which we talked to, which was a federation of smaller newspapers, they did, they did, they thought it stank and they did investigate. But, you know, the big newspapers actually swallowed the line that Saddam had these weapons of mass destruction. So on that front, I think that was damaged. And as for the intelligence services, well, the, 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 the intelligence services actually were guilty, I think, if guilty is perhaps a strong word, but anyway, 
at the very end, they were guilty, actually, of kind of massaging their own information under political pressure. I mean, I think that's mm. certainly when you read carefully what Chilcott said about the weapons of mass destruction, the, the abolition of the word may have imminent threat, may pose, you know, all that may, may being turned under political pressure from number 10 into has weapons of mass destruction, does pose a threat. So I think all three, uh, yes, certainly took a knock. And whether that, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not a social scientist. I wouldn't go into the business of whether that affected the Brexit vote. I mean, maybe the Brexit vote was affected because, you know, Labour didn't come strongly out in favour of Remain. I don't know. It could be all sorts of causes for that. Um, I think that's, an, that's a, a different matter. That was the first time I remember. I, mean, I was a teenager. And I remember the division about whether we should go in uh, with the French to unseat NASA from nationalizing the Suez Canal uh, when, you know, afterwards it turned out that we had colluded with Israel and it turned out equally that the Americans had threatened to uh, destroy the value of the pound and that's what led us to stop. Now, that argument certainly was a polarizing argument. In fact, I remember the two church wardens at our village church actually had to be separated from coming to blows over the issue. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, when you get the church divided, you know. you. So uh, certainly over that, that was true. And certainly, yes, over the miners' strike and indeed over um, Margaret Thatcher's monetarist policies and the unemployment and over the poll tax, people hurling, mm. um, hurling um, scaffolding, uh, polls in, in Trafalgar Square. No, I think we forget too easily. I, I had a friend, a political friend, when the poll tax riots were going on, he said, oh, you want to call this a riot? You want to look back to the Bristol riots in whenever it was? Chase <laughs> the, the, the Bishop of Bristol over the roofs of the cathedral. And, that, you know, I think polarisation is what happens. I mean, that's what happens in politics. I mean, I know you're famously a sort of centrist, but I imagine you get angry and you get um, frustrated and you do take a hard line. I mean, being a centrist can be just as hard line as being on the left or the right. Is that true? I think so. I, I'm not in any position to comment on that. I, I don't really consider myself a, a centrist, although lots of people <laughs> say that to you. Uh, that's really I, 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 I thought you were. No, no, not at all. No, lots of people certainly say it. I, but you're right. I mean, ultimately, if, if one was to have a, a sort of absolute centrist position over the last few years, let's say if you're, well, I mean, you know, Alistair Campbell or something, which pretty much defines that view, then, you know, in the period of Corbyn and sort of Theresa May Brexit, Boris Johnson, then that would be, that would be a form of polarisation in itself, right? No, but, 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 the, but I mean, the question about division, political divisions and whether they get healed or it's again, it's a social sciences questions. And I was doing a debate with Essex university social sciences yesterday and talking about um, the way in which opinion coalesces round a view and then becomes extreme mm. and, and whether it then, you know, whether it can be diffused in that, for instance, whether Trump supporters will under Biden's sort of blandishment of, I want to bring the country together and heal the country, whether that will have any effect. And, there was an American guy on it, and he was, you know, quite rightly pointing out that you can try and change people's views, but it's it's mad to just assume that uh, things will heal. That divisions, political divisions, after all, are, are lifeblood. And polit political decisions about what our lives are about, 
what we want for our children, what we want for our country, what we want for ourselves. Uh, they're very ferocious, aren't they? Uh, you know, and 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 it's it's true at the at the top of society as much as the bottom. The top protecting itself, and the bottom, you know, f- floundering on universal benefit in tower block flats with one bedroom and being told to stay in it uh, for you know three months. I mean. <laughs> Of course, politics is is ferocious. Yes, I, I, we're not, we're, so going back to the, the the fault line. I think what we were saying was that this illustrates, perhaps, as well as is an example of the political division and the the um, ferocity of the argument and the the distrust about what we're told. All of which, of course, has been exacerbated by social media to an extraordinary mm-hmm. extent. I mean, social media is far more powerful than political gossip used to be, I think. Though I've no doubt in the coffee houses of the 18th century, you heard just as much scurrilous and scandalous stuff as you do on social media. I mean, do you you feel, I mean, you're arguably... there's there's almost no one in this country who's who's sort of got more experience of the public debating politics than than you. Do you feel like we're in a qualitatively different place right now in this period, in the post-social media period, than we have been in the sort of years and decades preceding it, in the manner in which we debate each other? I think in a way, yes, because social media provides the megaphone and that... um, the volume is up all the time. You can't speak quietly on social media. Mm. Uh, you have to speak angry and convinced and certain and doubt and hesitation and moderation are not read. Nobody cares about it. It's the, it's the aggression that counts on any side of any argument. So I suppose social media has helped. But you say I've got, I mean, my experiences of, of public opinion well, question time I did for 25 years on on, on BBC, but um, obviously before that I was a reporter. So I, I mean, my work has always been just li- listening to people and talking to people. And in the, but in the in the time on question time, uh, there were it certainly it certainly got rougher at at certain points. But again, I think it's at particular points. I mean, when I remember when I began doing it, it was when John Major was still prime minister. And there was a groundswell of opposition to the Conservatives, which led to 97 and Blair's victory. And that was coming through in our audiences in question time. And Conservative MPs were always briefed, as they always have been, to say that the question time audience is biased to the left, which is Mm. rubbish. I mean, we we always took terrific care to get the audience balanced. But I remember one night, we, we used to have a sort of supper after the programme, and a Conservative MP, I can't remember who it was, was on the panel. And he said afterwards, I, I realise that actually that's not an unbalanced audience. What we're seeing is the Conservatives turning against us. And this had been because there'd been ferocious attacks on John Major from the audience. And he'd sussed out that these weren't just Labour supporters or Liberal Democrat supporters or you know anarchists or whatever. These were Conservatives turning against John Major, alleging incompetence and wanting him out, which in the end, of course, led to the 97 Blair victory. So that was one moment. The second moment was when the expenses scandal broke. And you remember the mm. Daily Telegraph began revealing of course. 
that uh, people had spent money. I, the, we were, I think, in Grimsby when Margaret Beckett was accused, or when it, when it was revealed by the Telegraph that she'd had some quite small sum of money spent on flower baskets for her um, house in her constituency. And two women at the front said, are you going to give the money back? And she blushed slightly and bridled and said no, because all these MPs had been told, I mean, there were one or two egregious exceptions, but they'd all been told to massage their expenses because it was mm. thought that salaries couldn't be increased. So she thought she'd done nothing wrong. And anyway, she said no. And there was an absolute explosion from the audience of fury about that. And that went on for several weeks, really angry audiences about MPs' expenses and treating MPs with contempt. You know, it was like a, it was like a sort of hanging it was like pillorying them. If they'd been given eggs, they'd have thrown them. Well, somebody did once throw something, but it was a ham sandwich in it <laughs> against the government. <laughs> it was, it, it, it was, it, he was on his own for, on Question Time for some reason. We were in Brighton, I remember. He'd been defending his first, second, third, fourth year, whatever it was. And somebody at the back at the end, so frustrated, threw. We used to give the, the audience ham sandwiches and tea was BBC hospitality. It was slightly stale bread and sort of old ham. This person at the back threw this sandwich and it parted in midair. <laughs> so it went three ways. The top layer of the bread went one way, the bottom the other, and the ham landed at Blair's feet, mine and Blair's feet. I didn't, I didn't think I ate it, but it was just a... Anyway, that was anger. But then, of course, over, over Brexit, yes. I mean, that, was, that really became ferocious particularly after the referendum. I mean, it was quite fierce before the referendum, but after the referendum, you had just half the audience just shouting, get it done, get it done, as though somehow you could wave a wand and be out of the EU like that and they'd have their brave new world. So the debate was very polarised. I think it's getting more polarised. I think it's encouraged by social media. I think we're seeing, you know, the evidence of... QAnon, I notice, is, has gone quiet, apparently, in America after Trump's defeat, which is weird. I don't know why. But anyway, the idea of conspiracies. I was reading this morning only in the paper about, believe it or not, Totnes in Devon, a place I know very well. You know, people not wearing masks and because of COVID and posting stuff about vaccines being dangerous and people believing that a vaccine would inject you with little tiny th- I don't know what bits of something or other that would allow you you're, mm. you've taken over and controlled uh, in Totnes. I mean, I know Totnes has a liberal reputation, but this was a conspiracy reputation in Totnes. It's rather strange going on, and they hold they hold rallies if the story is true. I mean, I, I read it in the paper. I haven't been down there. I'm not allowed to go there at the moment, so I don't <laughs> know what's going on. But it's just it is it, it, it there is a kind of there is a kind of madness taking over. But I think there are enough sane people around to you know remain fairly level-headed right, what do you think makes a sort of a good healthy argument sort of an argument where you actually get somewhere i mean over the years what kind of things have you noticed that happen that make an argument worthwhile that means that there's progress or alternatively the kind of things that lead it to degenerate into just sort of you know angry shouting matches when both sides listen simple mm. as that mm. when i have ferocious arguments Occasionally with people, I'm, I, I'm, maybe I'm not listening properly, but I always accuse the other person of not listening to what I'm saying. I think just listening and learning from what people say 
I abhor arguments that just become shouting matches. I mean, uh, you know, we have them occasionally in my own family over politics, but I, I can't bear that. I, um, but then maybe I'm a sort of mealy-mouthed listener instead of somebody imbued with passion for what I think should be. Um, so can we expect more podcasts from you in the future? You know, I'd really love doing them. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting broadcasting form or art form because it's quite unlike, it's obviously unlike television, but it's unlike radio. That's what I've discovered, that to make a podcast successful, you have to whisper into people's ears effectively about mm. what you're saying and not be strident. And so on the professional side, I just find it really interesting to do as for subject matter, I think there's a wealth of material out there, which I would love to do if I can, you know, you have to find the right producer. The work is all done in the, in the production. I mean, the, the amazing skill of the people who edit these things and who, you know, make it easy on the ear with not too much music, little bit of music, little traces. So it's like a conversation, traces of words and argument and all that. That's very, very skilled, much underestimated. And a lot of podcasts... Uh, really sort of plonk along because they haven't got that facility or felicity mm. as well. And I think the thing, I mean, the thing I've enjoyed about, I did one on Rupert Murdoch called The Sun King before this one. And this one, The Fault Line, is, it's a, it's a kind of masterwork of production and leave aside what I do in it. It just is so fascinating and it's so, it coaxes you into the story and draws you in and I've got people saying, you know, can't wait for the next one, can't wait for what it reveals. That's what's exciting about it. It's so just a different form of broadcasting. So, I, yes, I hope, I hope there'll be more coming along that way. <laughs> David, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. That was your Bunker Daily. More of that every day of the week, as the name rather suggests, alongside the main show. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>